Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 986. On today's show, we do our best to react to a very busy week in baseball. First up, David Lorla welcomes Chad Durbin, TV analyst for the Philadelphia Phillies and 14-year Major League veteran. David and Chad talk about the Phillies' moves at the deadline and how new faces like Noah Syndergaard, Brandon Marsh, and old pal David Robertson could help the team down the stretch. The duo also talk about the Juan Soto trade and how he compares to another all-time great national that ended up elsewhere in Bryce Harper. Chad also gives us insight into the inner workings of clubhouse chemistry and leadership, what it was like to play with Pedro Martinez, and why he struggled to face Maglio Ordonez. I've been meaning to ask you for some time now, why did you continue to pitch to Maglio Ordonez? Because I was 22. <laughs> yeah, do, you, do you know his numbers against you? Yeah, it's got to be like 9 for 13. Uh, 12 for 17 with three bombs. Okay, so he the last four times I faced him, I struck him out three times and broke a bat, but it was all in spring training. <laughs> when he was young, he was in his prime, and I was tipping pitches. And the, the two things collided. I remember A.J. Hinch catching in 2002. I, I was hurting. I had elbow surgery later on that year. But, you know, we were in a, a, like an 0-2 count, and – we threw a fastball in, and I'm talking, it was two baseballs off the inside corner. And he took, he took his hands inside the ball and hit it and, it, and it hit the foul pole. And I remember looking at AJ. He made a trip out after that. And I was like, was that on the plate? And he said, no, that guy's just really confident when he faces you. After that, Eric Longenhagen is joined by Jason Martinez and Jay Jaffe for an extended conversation about all the moving and shaking this week. We hear about the post-trade deadline afterglow of the website, and Jason tells us about the buzz in San Diego after all their exciting acquisitions. The three amigos discuss Juan Soto's historical significance, Dustin May returning from injury soon, and how the Padres and Dodgers find themselves among the cream of the crop in the National League. Look, obviously, it's King Kong versus Godzilla every time the Dodgers and the Padres get together now. They have separated themselves from maybe not the rest of the NL as a whole, just because I think Atlanta is is very good. And I think that some of those teams in the central, just Milwaukee's rotation gives them a puncher's chance against anyone, et cetera. But like- Likewise for the Mets. I wouldn't I, I wouldn't count the Mets that right out now that they've got uh, Jacob DeGrom back. And I know that <laughs> I'd get run down in the streets here if I, were to, if I were to slight them. For sure, for sure. We also hear about which teams now find themselves out of the race, how 40-man roster crunch may have informed some moves, and some of the fascinating prospects who are now with new clubs. Finally- Eric, Jason, and Jay lament the passing of Vin Scully, who served as the voice of baseball for so many for so long. Jay wrote about the legendary broadcaster, and we hear just how special he was to anyone that ever heard or interacted with him. And so immediately turned the Dodgers game on, and Joe Davis and, and Jessica Mendoza are talking about it, and was struck by the way baseball Twitter, which had been buzzing about Juan Soto all day long, you know, and, and the rest of the trade moves just instantly. It was just like blanket Vin Scully coverage. I mean, everybody had a story about Vin Scully. And that's because, you know, Vin Scully wasn't just who he was, you know, the announcer of the Dodgers. He was somebody who was just who was way bigger than that. Obviously, he had a national profile because, you know, a good chunk of his career was as a national broadcaster. But through you know this last stage of his career with MLB TV and social media, you know, he could reach everybody who had a subscription to one of those things. But before we get to these wonderful segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the place to get yourself some Fangraphs merch, 
you can pick up an ad-free membership, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. It is the best way to not only browse the site, but to help us to do everything we do, including all of our extensive trade deadline coverage. It is because of our supporters that we are able to do all of this, and we can't appreciate it enough. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Larla. My guest is Chad Durbin, broadcast analyst for the Philadelphia Phillies, and of course, former big league pitcher. Uh, Chad, thanks for coming on to Fangrass Audio. Oh, man, I'm glad to be on here. We've been, uh, I know we wanted to do this a little sooner, so I'm glad we're doing it right now. And thank you for offering it up. I'm, I'm excited. No, we have been trying to, you know, get the timing right. But as it turns out, this is actually perfect because we just had, uh, you know, the trade deadline. You know, we are doubling up on on Philly's focus a little because the last podcast guest I had was Ellen Adair. You know, but this is a very interesting baseball team. So let's dive into some Phillies starting with, uh, we're talking on Wednesday. So last night's trades. Tell you what, um, from from the Philly standpoint, I mean, you're not getting Juan Soto or anything, and you're not giving away the farm for it. But you know, you go down the list: uh, Noah Syndergaard and Brandon Marsh, David Robertson coming back in a healthy capacity uh, to help the Phillies out, and then uh, Andrew Vasquez. You're putting some pieces together there where the the pitching staff to me has been pretty good, but you kind of know that a couple pieces being added you know, for the stretch run for a team that should be in it in September, uh, which is only a month away now that we've crawled into uh, August. That, that to me, Syndergaard, I think he'll thrive in, in a, a pennant race. I think he'll try to, you know, step up and be who I think everybody thought he could be. So I think that piece is great. Brandon Marsh, you know, Kay Long, the hitting coach, Kevin Long with, uh, with the Phillies, I think he takes a Brandon Marsh and, you know, really kind of propels him forward and and being around a lot of those, you know, quote unquote, professional hitters. I think that's going to help Marsh out a good bit. And then as far as Robertson and Vasquez, you know, those pieces that can come in and help from both the right and left handed side, get outs, you know, with a jury's familia, uh, being DFA'd. That's a. Someone that they thought they were going to be able to count on that just hasn't been able to string it together. Long he had some good stretches, but he's out. You know, obviously, Mickey Moniak and Logan Ohop and Ape and and you know Brown Sanchez. You know those guys being traded away. I think we saw with a Mickey Moniak just a glimpse for the last two weeks of spring training of what he could be. And of course, you know I've seen it so many times when guys are just about to take off or you think they are. They take a hit, you know, either a, a pulled hamstring, uh, you know, something small that keeps them out. Now, not that a broken bone was uh, small, but it did keep him out for that stretch of time. And hopefully he goes and because and, he's a good kid, like to see him, you know, succeed at high level. Hopefully he goes out to L.A. and gets a chance to go play on a regular basis. And the Phillies, of course, brought in uh, arguably the best beard in baseball, too. So add a little, <laughs> add a little bit of style there, right? The new center fielder. Do you think those guys, knowing that they're – in you know trade talks or possible trade acquisitions, do you think they look and they're like, oh, God, I hope I don't go to the Yankees with this beard? Because you know, th- it, you end up like you end up looking at a guy and it doesn't look like the same human being. And I, th- I find it funny, like if, if Marsh, if he went to the Yankees, he's unrecognizable the next time you see him play a baseball game. 
And that would be unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, I don't recall. Did you? Uh, were you a Yankee at any point in your what twelve or fourteen year career? I wasn't. To uh, you know, the heavy demise of of my high school basketball coach. He was a, a huge Yankees fan. We I mean, every time we played him in any capacity or any time I was a free agent, he was the one kind of shooting me a text or calling me say, hey. Why don't just go play for the Yankees? You know, what a great organization. You just sell it all the time. But no, never got to be a, a Yankee and wear the pinstripes. I, and I have, there are rare few guys I've ever heard have anything bad to say about playing for the Yankees. So, yeah, I guess to shave on a regular basis is not so bad for uh, the upside that comes with being there. No, for sure. No, with uh, New York in mind, too, I think it's pretty crazy that the Phillies just got Cindergaard because he and Zach Wheeler are now in the rotation. And it was not so many years ago that Phillies fans were rooting pretty hard against the, those two guys. No, it's 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 wild to see. I saw a picture of Bryce Harper, Juan Soto, Trey Turner, and then you know, and, and obviously we all think Nats. They won, you know, they they won after Bryce left that year. But those guys are are you know some of the more recognizable faces in baseball. And from a pitching standpoint, when you talk about Degrom. And Wheeler and Syndergaard, I mean, they were the next coming of of what was the Atlanta Braves in the '90s, and in a lot in a lot of ways, they've lived up or exceeded some of those expectations. When you're talking about those three and, and Matts, you know, those guys were pretty darn good. And now, you know, baseball has kind of done what it does to you know talented guys as they progress through their career and spread them out. But it's 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 uh, it's pretty cool for those guys. I'm sure for Syndergaard, for Thor, it's it's probably very comforting knowing that you have a guy in the clubhouse that you've uh, you've known in the past. I mean, it makes it really easy to, to walk in. I mean, he's not going to have anybody. He, he can't hide. We know that. He's a large human. So he's going to get in the clubhouse and, and probably look for some kind of a an onboarding you know guy. I, I, I always tried to be that guy in clubhouses when we got a Joe Bland or whatever. You, you'd kind of go and pick their brain, see what they like. I mean, are they going to be into fantasy football when we do that stuff? Are they, you know, are they wine drinkers? Are they what do they like to do? How, you know, how old are their kids? Who can they go hang out with? You just try to make that transition as easy as possible. But it's nice. It's it's always nice to know somebody. I'm sure for synagogues can be nice to know Wheeler. No, and the Red Sox just uh, acquired Tommy Pham, so that uh, sort of ties into the fantasy football. Is that uh, I don't know if that's very dangerous in the clubhouse. <laughs> they, they, you need a, a UFC octagon or or something for those guys apparently you know <laughs> we never had those issues uh brad lidge and in, in you know phil sheridan who's the clubhouse manager for the phillies uh we had we had just everybody's on good terms maybe we just followed the rules better i don't know or, or weren't, we weren't such sticklers for it um i can remember in one one not that we're gonna talk football in one draft this is funny roy halliday he drafted like the entire indianapolis colts team because he was a huge Manning fan, and he's like, "Nah, I'm, I don't care who is the next best, you know, guy on the list. I want this guy." <laughs> he said, "When they win, we win, and when they lose, we lose." So it was just funny. It came to mind when you know <laughs> when I thought about uh, fantasy football. That was uh, kind of the funniest thing that happened. We just every time you look at, you, is he really going to take another Colt? Like, I don't even know who that guy is. He's like, I'm taking him. So anyway, that's like kind of funny. But yeah, it's funny you spun that in there uh, with Tommy Pham. Uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. Um, stay tuned, right? No, stay tuned for sure. I think, Chad, we are obligated to address yesterday's mega deal. 
What did you think about the Nationals trading a player that people think are going in the Hall of Fame someday? Well, I think when he turned down the offer, what was it, 13 years, 440 million? I, I forget. It was numbers that, you know, made me kind of giggle to myself because it's, you know, it's where it's headed, you know, for, for Juan Soto being so young and, and so productive. But yeah, I mean, to, to take, you know, the equivalent of a Ted Williams, a Mickey Mantle, a Mike Trout, you know, an Albert Pujols in four years into their career and, you know, five years or whatever and, and trade them. I can't imagine how hard it was for Rizzo. I can't imagine how hard it was, you know, for, for a Martinez, for, for the guys that are around him every day, they've, they've watched him grow into this and, and you don't hear anything bad said about him. He works hard. He's, he's a great kid. It's gotta be really difficult, but at the end of the day, they are running a business and you have to get, a poll for him. And, and from everything that I'm reading and, and looking at, you know, it's like getting four first round picks or the equivalent of it with some proven track records and a, and a big league shortstop. You, you just got, you got a pretty good trade for him, but man, and then Hosmer holding it up <laughs> and you can't blame him at all. You know, he came, he went there when San Diego wasn't what San Diego has been these last couple of years. And then, you know, they're asking him to exit, you know, stage left. Uh, to 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 allow this uh, juggernaut of, of a lineup to be put together, and and you, you just, I can't blame him for wanting more than to go to a rebuild in in Washington. So you know, off to Fenway he goes, right? Off to Fenway he goes, where he will be based on his reputation in the game, a great clubhouse presence. Uh, Chad, you have been in big league clubhouses for a very very long time. Is a good clubhouse presence really important to a ball club? I think it's I think it's enormous. I've been in clubhouses that had great chemistry, and you know, I remember Jim Leland telling me, you know, everybody talks about chemistry. Show me a team that's winning, and I'll show you chemistry. And in part, he's right. It's easy to like all the guys you're you're going to work with every day when everything's going well. But what I've seen with teams that that win and and go into the playoffs and win is that everybody's important, that everybody's pulling for each other. And that's not always been the case. Good chemistry versus individuals, you know, kind of on the same page, you know, pulling for the sixth, seventh inning reliever as much as they're pulling for the three hole. That, that to me starts with in spring training. It starts with supporting guys uh, when you're in the, the weight room or you're running sprints in spring. It's taking the selfishness out of those equations. It takes leaders. It takes, you know, quiet leaders, leaders by example. It takes the guys that are going to jump on top of a table and tell everybody what they think when we suck. You know, it takes it takes leaders and, and not all, you know, the, the traditional you know, mouthpiece leaders, but it takes everybody. It takes, you know, guys that, you know, will pick up a tray off a table for somebody else because they're in it for the team. I know that's a... a kind of a weird example, but it's what comes to mind is, you know, nobody's in it thinking about, you know, their numbers and thinking about what they can do for them. Now, there's obviously a selfish aspect to playing the game because you you do keep your job based on the numbers that you put up. So as long as that isn't widely apparent amongst the 25 plus guys that are in the clubhouse with you during the course of the season, as long as they know that you're in it to win and that you're going to do those selfish things in, in kind of the, you know, 
as a a piece, a wheel, a spoke in the wheel. That that to me is what what happens. And and a lot of times, I'll, I'll tell you this: Charlie Manuel did such a good job in two thousand eight. We had a team full of guys that were either creeping into arbitration or creeping into free agency as that year came to an end. And it had to be in late August. And and I think everybody starts to realize that their year is either going really well and they're about to get paid a little bit more than they have, um, or they're they're going to move, uh, maybe be a free agent. They start and, and you know you get wind of that as a manager. Well, he he came in and. Yeah, he said he'd, he'd kind of talk to his Cleveland Indians guys back, you know, in, in the early 2000s, late 90s. He talked to them kind of the same way is if you go win, if you go out and you win, you're going to get paid and you'll get paid more than you deserve. But if you go win, that's that'll take care of it all. And, and man, if you look back at the guys on that roster and the contracts they signed, they won and they got paid in, in excess of probably what they deserved if they weren't winning. And I think that is, is, you know, the difference. And it starts, like I said, in spring training, it starts with some guys, you know, understanding how to handle the media. And, and I think you've seen, if anybody's you know, watched the captain about Derek Jeter, there's, there's some pieces in there where he and Chad Curtis had at a moment where Chad didn't, didn't like that he was visiting with A-Rod, in, you know, during a brawl or a fight, a you know, bench clearing deal. And it wasn't the case, but, for Chad Curtis, I mean, he, he got in his face, they discussed it. And then Chad Curtis announced it with the media in the, in the clubhouse. And Derek Jeter did a really good job of shutting that down and, and leading, but that's how small things can blow up. And I think in a Philadelphia, in a New York, either one, Mets or, or Yankees, LA, some of these bigger markets, Chicago, if you don't handle the media uh, just like you would handle anything else and do it the right way, make yourself available, make sure that you aren't burying a teammate, that you understand that those, you know, the, the journalists and, and, and the TV, the media, they, they have a job to do. And part of the reason you're popular and you're doing well and you're getting paid uh, as well as you are is because of them. And, and I think the clubhouses I've seen, and I know I'm running on a little bit, but it really is. I'm seeing it more now, even as a broadcaster, the guys that get it, they help the clubhouse out as much as anybody else because the stories don't get written about guys that you like, you know, in a negative way, you write good ones. But if a guy treats you like crap and, and looks at you like you shouldn't be in the clubhouse or you, you know, you, know, you end up kind of leaning towards, okay, well, as soon as he has a bad day, I'm burying him. And I know that's not how everybody thinks, but that certainly can happen in having guys that lead by, you know, making themselves available, understanding the media, understanding a, a situation like Alec Bohm, um, saying what we all have said in work settings before is this place sucks. And, 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 you know, he said it in different words. But the way that the veterans showed him how to handle that situation, that is where chemistry in a clubhouse comes from. Bohm, of course, being a young player and with young players in mind, Chad, in his age 22 season, let me take a quick look at the numbers here. Bryce Harper had a 197 WRC plus, 9.5 WAR, and he won an MVP award. In Juan Soto's age 22 season last year, he had a 163 WRC plus, 7 WAR, and he finished second in MVP voting to Bryce Harper. <laughs> I'm a little surprised that we're not hearing more Harper Soto comps in the last day or so. I think with everything else going on, I think it's coming. 
And, and I think it'll happen, you know, if, if Bryce were in the middle of another campaign and, and swinging the bat and, and, and present, I think maybe it comes up a little more, but uh, there's certainly some, some direct lines to be drawn there. And you got to pitch to Juan Soto now. You think, I think as a pitcher, a lot of the times, cause I, cause I was, and I look at that lineup and I mean, you literally could just shuffle that deck and the, the top four could hit in whatever order you feel like putting them out there that day. I don't know who you hit behind Soto, which, which guy pick your, pick your poison. I think Manny fits pretty well, but you know, their, their acquisitions include Fernando Tatis Jr. Because he's going to be coming off the DL uh, or IL. Um, that's to me, that's uh, he's going to put up potentially put up ridiculous numbers. I, you know, just watching him in the home run derby. Soto shooting balls to left center, like he's in the middle of a game because his swing is just so pure. I mean, watching Mark DeRosa and Sean Casey break down Juan Soto's swing yesterday and just them, them watching him in slow motion, you can see two former big leaguers that were pretty darn good. Look at that guy and just, they're, they're amazed at, you know, the, the ability physically, but also the mental approach and, and the emotional approach to be able to continue to be that good. It's just, it's, you know, he's a lot of fun to watch and tell you what I, I, my, my son, who's 15. He turned 15 today. He, it's his birthday today. He like he, he likes watching the Padres. He's not, he doesn't wear Padres stuff. He's, he's, he's a big leaguers kid. They don't cheer for teams the way that I did. I cheered for the Cubs as a kid and would have, you know, would have died to, to shake Ryan Sandberg's hand as a 12 year old kid. But he, so I got a really cool looking spring training hat when I was uh, down in Clearwater, I had kind of the sunset and, and a spring training. He, and, and it was just beautiful. And, and, and I, the only one available uh, when it was starting to get faded and beat up was a Padres one. So I ordered it off of, uh, you know, some site and it came in and he was like, oh man, the Padres. And I was like, what you like watching them? Well, after this trade, <laughs> you might be rocking that at um, just because it's a talk piece now. It's like, yeah, this, you go watch these guys hit. Yeah. Chad, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about teams are going to have to pitch to Juan Soto. I've been meaning to ask you for some time now, why did you continue to pitch to Magli Ordonez? Because I was 22. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you know his numbers against you? Yeah, it's got to be like nine for 13. Uh, 12 for 17 with three bombs. Okay, so he the last four times I faced him, I struck him out three times and broke a bat, but it was all in spring training. <laughs> when he was young, he was in his prime, and I was tipping pitches. And the, the two things collided. I remember A.J. Hinch catching in 2002. I, I was hurting. I had elbow surgery later on that year. But, you know, we were in a, a, like an 0-2 count. And we threw a fastball in. And I'm talking, it was two baseballs off the inside corner. And he took, he took his hands inside the ball and hit it and, it. and it hit the foul pole. And I remember looking at A.J. He made a trip out after that. And I was like, was that on the plate? And he said, no, that guy's just really confident when he faces you. And, and yeah, Maglio was – and he's a great teammate. I played with him in uh, part 06 and 07. Fantastic teammate. He told me – because I was forcing curveball changeup back then. And when I came out of my surgery and started to retool, I was sinker, cutter, slider, curveball changeup. I mean, I had, I, I had a different arsenal. And he did. I faced him with the Phillies in 08 in spring training and 
you know, it embarrassed their, their, you know, first six guys I faced. Cause I, you know, I just had a different arsenal and they, they were, and they had seen me, but it was, it was different facing them with uh, a different, you know, level of confidence, maybe a little age. It wore better on me than it did Maglio at that time. Cause he was older than me, but yeah, he recalled, you know, hitting pretty well against me. And I said, you weren't the only one check, check the numbers out. And then I always, you know, give the wink. And he's like, you know, I need an asterisk by my numbers. Uh, because everybody was, you know, getting assistance. We'll say it in a nice way during that steroid era. Seemed like every guy that walked up to the plate was, you know, grinding sawdust off because of their physical capabilities. Yeah, Maglio is another player who wouldn't have been a good Yankees fit because uh, he had some pretty good hair going for a while. No, great salad. I agree. Yeah, we're running a little short on time, but uh, I do want to want to hit you with a few more things. You were on a couple of uh, a pair of Phillies teams that went to the World Series. Were there any deadline deals in those two years that really helped the club? I'll tell you what, Joe Blanton was not the splash that I don't, I don't think the fan base thought that was a great move. And I got to tell you, Pat Gillick nailed it. He knew what the team needed. And what they needed was security in that fourth or fifth spot in the rotation. They needed an innings eater. They needed a guy in the clubhouse that was not going to be worried about, you know, whether he's the number one, the number two, you know, guy, this, that, or the other. And I really thought that that, to me, was a difference maker um, that year. Uh, I, I really thought that it was, you know, the Joe Blanton trade in the clubhouse was fantastic. So that one, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to think about 08 and 09 blend together in my head so so much so that, you know, sometimes I have to, was that this year? Was it that year? The 09 deal brought over Cliff, was it? Yeah, Cliff Lee. I, I believe that Cliff Lee did come over in one of those two seasons. At yeah, the and, like that was fantastic. It was, again, I think the starting pitching is kind of what I paid most attention to because I was a reliever and it, it was going to help me out. So there's a little selfishness there. But yeah, those acquisitions are because August – July and August coming out of the all-star break, the the game drags a little bit. And, you know, even for guys that have been around for a while. And I will say this, Jimmy Rollins and and Chase Utley, those guys, they were always focused on this is when don't get hot in September, get hot now, like make up the distance now or separate yourself now. And I felt like good acquisitions, trade deadline guys, they kind of with that mantra being part of, of what we were with the Phillies, that helped us. It was like extra water pushing the wave, if that makes sense. No, that does make sense, Chad. We should touch on another acquisition as well. Pedro Martinez signed with the Phillies midway through what turned out to be his final season. What was it like to be around Pedro? Well, I, I, I think Pedro was uh, – I love Pedro. I, I enjoyed being around him. I enjoyed talking, pitching with him. I, I enjoyed his energy. I mean, he's just a, he was just a great guy. I think that he was kind of in the, the, the point and he was going to eat innings, but he wasn't, he wasn't Pedro you know, anymore. He was, he was a very good pitcher, but he was no, no longer able to just dial up 97 and knock guys down and throw, you know, ridiculous off-speed stuff at guys. But to, to respect, you know, him at a very high level, he was able to pitch with not very good stuff. But just, just, I think everybody that, that saw him that year kind of would agree but he just found ways to outcompete, you know, people with average stuff, and and I just really appreciated him in his twilight of, of his career, just going out there and, and again just competing 
and out competing guys every time he went out there. I just really appreciated you know all of that. That energy was uh, palpable. It helped us get to where we got. And you were teammates with Jamie Moyer, so uh, you know you talk about guys who maybe didn't have great stuff but knew how to pitch. He was, uh, you know, he's the poster child. Oh, Jamie Moyer, uh, it, it was almost comical because they would line up nine right-handed hitters with Miami, all young, all talented, and he would carve them up. I mean, it was you know like the Roy Hobbs picture with the bat going around and the you know the steam coming out of the head. That he would just spin them into the ground. And with Pedro uh, Feliz, Petey over at third, they'd hit a bunch of hard ground balls and he'd eat it up, throw them, throw them, you know, good, good feed over there to first on a line with a good arm. And I just, that's what I remember is him just, you know, giving those guys fits and he knew it. I mean, he almost danced into the clubhouse knowing he was going to face some of those lineups. And there were some other ones that weren't as fun for him to face. Some veteran lineups gave him hell and he knew it was coming. He's like, I'm just trying to get, five or six innings in, hand this off to everybody. Hopefully it's a close game. And and he was just, you know, he, you'd show up at 1230 and he would be in full uniform on the day he was pitching. Like you just pants on, ready to go, cleats on. I mean, he's just, you know, 47 years old, however old he was. I mean, he's three years older than I am right now. And he was, you know, just loved the game, loved to teach it. It was like having another pitching coach when you walked off. You know, he would say, hey, I know you had a good outing the last couple of times, but I can see something is leaking here. Go watch some film. How do you feel? And get, go reference your notes or whatever. And he just understood that. It, it, it propelled everybody forward to have a guy like him or Pedro Martinez, those veterans. And, and you forget that Flash Gordon and Rudy Sienes were down there in 08 and, and pitched a decent bit before they both got hurt. But those, those veteran guys helping – a Brad Lidge who was kind of trying to re, you know, recreate what he had done in Houston all over again, and he did. You, you think about all those guys and Ryan Matson buying into being a reliever and being excellent in the second half. I mean, just you know, those the leadership comes from those guys. Like we said, you know, what, what happens in clubhouses like that? Well, that's what happens. A Jamie Moyer is living and dying for the game every day. So one last thing, Chad, before I let you go, I mentioned earlier that we are talking on Wednesday. So, of course, the great Vince Scully passed away oh, man. last night. Your thoughts on his phenomenal career as a broadcaster? Well, 67 years uh, in the game broadcasting, uh, you know, started Jackie Robinson was still playing. He, he saw the game change in so many ways. He saw, you know, the Brooklyn Dodgers become the LA Dodgers, you know, got to call Sandy Koufax, no hitters and perfect games or, you know, it just in, in his presence, the voice, you know, in, in playoff years where he wasn't doing Dodger games or even in for love of the game, you know, it's the voice of baseball in a lot of ways. Um, we all listen to, you know, Harry Callis and, you know, uh, Harry Carey and you know, Chip Carey. Oh, we listen to all these guys through the years, but Ben Scully, he just, I can't even say better, but he just did it so well. He was so relatable. He was he was one of the best storytellers. I reference it all. I think about what would how would Vin even approach telling this story? And I'll never get to that level in any way, shape, or form. But it was it was to the point where I, yeah, I'll tell you this, and this, 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 we can wrap it up after this. Dodger Stadium. I get on an elevator, and it opens up. I press the button, it opens up, and two people are in the elevator. It's you know, Vin Scully and Alyssa Milano and, and the 10 year old self or 12 year old self that thought she was amazing 
didn't care that she was in the elevator. It was Vince Scully. Holy cow, Vince Scully's in the elevator. And, you know, hey, Chad, you know, how you doing? He knew who I was. He even knew who my high school basketball coach was, the, the Yankees fan. Um, he knew he, he he knew him and that I played basketball and that he had a storied career as a basketball coach. I mean, he just, man, what an amazing human being. What a great ambassador for baseball. And, you know, watching, you know, the, the ticker sometimes is almost haunting the older I get because of the Al Kalines and the Bob Gibsons and, and the Vin Scully's passing away. But, man, what an impact all of those men had on the game. And Vin Scully, man, we're going to miss him. Uh, in so many ways, just, you know, even when he showed up to Dodger Stadium post-career, post-2016, what an amazing impact that he just, he had on, on you know, that organization. No, well, well said, Chad. So we will close on that. I guess I will simply just thank you again for being a guest on Fangrass Audio. Dave, thank you so much. Uh, I, I can get long-winded at times. <laughs> we got to fill some time. I, that's what we got to do, but I appreciate everything. Hey, uh, everybody loves to hear about baseball, and there are a lot of Phillies fans out there for sure. So thanks, Chad, and thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangrass Audio. It is the post-trade deadline afterglow at Fangrass.com. Everybody is sweaty and spent from the last 48 hours of frenzied activity this is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. I'm joined for a Three Amigos pod with Jason <laughs> Martinez and Jay Jaffe. How's it going, gentlemen? Ah, uh, emotionally exhausted, physically kind of kind of exhausted, but glad that that uh, our site uh, did so much great coverage. Same, 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 and and congrats to to us and our site. As, as I saw that we we broke a record for site traffic yesterday. Oh. That's nice. Which, which was set last year at this time, and so we did it again. And I think that's a good sign. Baseball is back. Baseball is fun. I mean, if it's, if it's if the actual baseball games, watching those aren't aren't enough for you guys for for baseball fans. I mean, just the chaos that goes into trade deadline, off season, free agency trades. You have all that stuff as well leading up to how do these guys actually get here? Yeah. Which obviously that's my interest, my biggest interest in, in this stuff. But yeah, it's so, it's so wild. And before, you know, if you just show up and watch the game, it's like, yeah, that's fun. This is cool. But to see how these guys actually got here and, and, uh, the path they took to get there, it's been, it's, it's pretty crazy. I just wanted to add one thing here, you know, and not to toot, not to toot our own horn too much, but one thing I really love is like, you know, when we get to do this and working with both of you guys who have your areas of specialty, Eric, with the prospects, Jason covering all the rosters, the payrolls, the transactions and stuff like that is to have all those tools and to integrate it into a comprehensive analysis. Also with like Dan doing playoff odds or doing, you know, longer term projections to give us an idea of what to expect. I don't think anybody can match what we do, you know, when when we, when we break down these trades and 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 it's just it's just such a cool thing to do. It's almost like makes my head spin because there's so much information to integrate, but it really makes this job about as fun as it gets. Yeah, it does feel good to to like sense the cohesion during periods like this where part of the reason our roster at the site is structure the way it is is so that we can kind of go about doing that and for sure we need like our you know Brandon Drury or whatever who can 
straddle this or that line on the bench. And I think that it was fairly recently that we put out a call for contributors and for, you know, I think we're going to be making a full-time hire here at the site in the next little while, but it is nice to, to go about doing stuff with everyone who, you know, can chip in and then it all gets done. And it is like kind of ridiculous that the amount of trade activity we had, there were 73 prospects moved within the last month. And I think we've got, uh, you know, we've got something on just about every single one of them. And if not, by the time I'm done today, we will. So yeah, it was a nice, it was nice. It's good working with you guys too. So let's get into some of the meat of it. Jason, what's it like in San Diego right now? Man, it's, it's already a baseball town just because of what happened with Tatis and Slam Diego. You got all the attention of, of all these, of all these people here. If you want, you know, I live downtown. I mean, you, you know, you can't walk the block without seeing Padre, Padre hats and people love the new uniforms. They love the, the, as most people love the, the, the city connect ones. It's just, I don't even know if people realize when they show up to the stadium that Tatis has been hurt. It's just like they show up and they're like, you know, where's that guy with the braids? Hey, he's fun, you know, but whatever we're here, we're watching game. We're spending a ton of money and it's, it's fun. It's just a good vibe. And then, you know, there's an anticipation of, of Tatis coming back, but now, wow. I mean, I, I think people know, Juan Soto is, you know, as, as casual as baseball <laughs> fans are, I, th- I think they know that. Oh my goodness, we got this dude. He just won the home run derby. He's 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 a guy who was in the World Series as a you know nineteen or twenty year old. There's definitely a buzz here. I think people people understand that this was a big deal. It's not new with with Preller with AJ Preller. He's he's, he's aggressive. He's not afraid, and I think he's at at the point in his career. It's, he's been here for a while, and he did he did what he was supposed to do. He went for it right away just based on, you know, I'm not sure if that was him or if it was ownership saying let's go for it, put in all his chips and came came away with, you know, Matt Kemp and, and Justin Upton and Kimbrell. Didn't work out. And then he, he, he rebuilt the team and did it quickly into having the best farm system in baseball. So now it's just him going for it the last couple of years. And I think this was his last, you know, basically he took the remainder of his chips. We're still, it was a good amount of chips. And he just said, boom, we're all in. If it doesn't work out, I mean, you know, AJ, I'm, I'm sure he's probably done in a couple of years here and he'll move on to his next project. But I think he's at the point where he said, this is it. This is it. All or nothing. This is this is all we got left. And let, let's see what happens here. But, you know, it is three pennant races with Juan Soto, Fernando Tatis Jr. and Manny Machado and, and obviously really good starting rotation as well. Jay, how about you? The, is there anything about Soto's historical significance that you can better contextualize for everybody? I mean, just the, you know, we've been we've been keeping an eye on his long-term projections, Dan and I especially, because I've written a couple times about, you know, when the Nationals made him uh, those extension offers, what, you know, what Zips says about him and where that puts him and also, you know, where he's al- where he already stands, uh, you know, as a as a 23 year old and before that as a 22 year old, you know, relative to the great hitters in history. I mean, he's like right up there. It's all Hall of Famers where he is, uh, I guess. And the funny thing is, I think it's eight out of 10 players are uh, who have done what he's done through age 23 in terms of like OPS plus or WRC plus are Hall of Famers. And Tatis is actually the other one who's right there with it. But, you know, of course, losing significant playing time relative to Soto, you know, I think compromises his long-term projection a bit. But it's fascinating to see. I mean, you know, we've, we've, this is, he's, you know, already looks like this generation's Ted Williams. And there's no question that this is just, this guy is like a tier above, if not two tiers above, 
anybody else who was on the market. There was just not that much in the way of impact players, you know, who were about to be dealt at the deadline, you know, and, and rightly everything, you know, all the attention centered around him and all the, you know, so many of the dominoes fell, you know, after Soto was traded, but it just, it's remarkable. I mean, you know, the Nationals won the World Series with Soto in, in 2019 and they've, you know, now pretty much completely dismantled that trading everything that could be traded. I mean, they're stuck with, you know, the big contracts of, uh, of, of Patrick Corbin and, and, Steven Strasburg, and to their credit, they didn't dilute the return on Soto by forcing, you know, the the Padres or whoever would have traded for him to take those guys. But I'm excited for Soto. I'm excited for to see what this what this core with Manny Machado, Tatis, and Soto can do together over the next three playoff races. And selfishly, I'm a little excited for me because coming this weekend, I'm going to be spending two weeks in San Diego, so I'm going to try to get to the ballpark at least a couple times and see these guys uh, hopefully with Tatis back. I mean, it's just, you know, we are watching a guy who's on on the path to becoming an all-time great here, and 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 we should not forget that. When are you going to San Diego? I'm leaving on, on Saturday, actually. Okay, me too. I'll see you guys there. I'm going to area oh. codes. <laughs> so all right. all three right. of us will all be there. Maybe, maybe yeah, we can actually get together. Yes, let's try to hook up. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, area code games begin this weekend, so I'll, I'll shut things down here the rest of the week and then drive to San Diego on Friday or Saturday with uh, with Bill Mitchell from Baseball America, who lives up the road for me. But uh, but yeah, the Padres. Look, obviously, it's King Kong versus Godzilla every time the Dodgers and the Padres get together. Now they have separated themselves from maybe not the rest of the NL as a whole, just because I think Atlanta is is very good, and I think that some of those teams in the Central. Just Milwaukee's rotation gives them a puncher's chance against anyone, etc. But like, likewise for the Mets, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't count the Mets at, right. out now that they've got uh, Jacob Degrom back. And I know that <laughs> I'd get run down in the streets here if I were, to, if I were to slight them. For sure, for sure. Um, it is fun to me that San Diego. Some of the guys here, like, there's an emotional connection with the front office and some of these guys that has endured and that you know jerks and Profar. And Nomar Mazzara and Jorge Alfaro and even you Darvish from Preller's Texas days are here. Jay Groom, who they got back from Boston in the Eric Cosmer salary dump, you know, that that is who, when the Red Sox drafted Jay Groom, it was supposedly, is rumored, that it was the Padres who had a big, fat, overslot deal waiting for Jay Groom later in you know, the first round or the comp round, I forget exactly what pick it was. And Boston was just like, screw it, take that guy. You know, let's ask forgiveness rather than permission. I know he's got an overslot deal waiting for him. We'll pay him handsomely. Won't be quite as much, but like dare that kid to go to school. And now finally he he's a Padre. So, you know, the Soto stuff, there's talk, you know, the Padres wanted to sign him as an amateur. And some of that resonates with Groom as well. And so much of the roster is a former Preller guy to some extent. You know, I really enjoy that. The farm system in San Diego now, yes, it is scant. The depth felt like it was already gone entering the year, and yet they were still able to pull off one of the biggest trades of my lifetime. It's not, I don't have like the feeling in my, in my physical body that I did when 
I was a teenager and Alex Rodriguez got moved and there was like the whole Soriano and Manny Ramirez and Maglio Ordonez, like all that fervent trade discussion before, you know, the the social media era, all that stuff was just sort of, you know, you're waiting with bated breath for there to be an update on SportsCenter or on ESPN or somewhere. But Luis Campusano still around. They acquired Cam Gallagher, kind of a shot across the bow of, bow of Campy. I think I'm not really sure what's going on there, why they don't necessarily believe in him or what's going on. He's hitting at AAA, but that's weird. And then Dylan Lesko, who they just drafted, high school guy with Tommy John, huge ceiling. Jackson Merrill, Samuel Zavala, uh, the next couple guys in the system who I really, really like, really young teenage hitters. And then after that, it's like, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. But um, I guess I have to push an update still because Victor Acosta is sitting on here. But that's and that's not right. But, but yeah, so um, pretty scant. But here we go. It's going to be a fun stretch run for this group. You know, Jay, was there any other deal over the last couple of days that stood out to you for whatever reason that you want to have a talk about? Yeah, there's there's a, there's a few. The Josh Hader trade. I mean, you know, just not only did the Padres get Juan Soto, they also got Josh Hader and they and they got uh, Brandon Drury. And they, they, you know, they were they. It wasn't just one move that that they made. It was it, you know, it, it was all this. But the Josh Hader move, I think, was seemed puzzling to a lot of people. And yet, when I broke it down for myself, it made sense to me. I mean, I know that Hader is you know, a better reliever and more well-known than, than Taylor Rogers, you know, the two closers who changed place, but you know, that the, uh, the Brewers leveraged, you know, the fact that, that Hader is just growing increasingly expensive uh, to getting multiple arms, including, you know, not only Rogers, but also Denelson Lamette, you know, and, and a whole boatload of talent there that, that, you know, that, that could help them Long term, I mean, both both of those guys, both Hader and Rogers, had terrible Julys, and that was kind of the starting point of my piece in terms of you know this looks superficially this just looks like a, a change of scenery you know challenge trade two closers, but I'll, obviously there are a lot more layers to it. There was the forty man roster aspect, which certainly uh, I think had had something to do with all the you know the Padres' flexibility to do deals. Although boy, they really cleaned it out after <laughs> after that. Um, that one stood out, and a couple more stood out as well. The head scratcher to me was the Yan- was the Yankees trading Joey Gallo to the Dodgers, and it wasn't the, the the Dodgers. I mean, it wasn't the Yankees' end that made sense. They were you know pretty much done with Gallo based on how he struggled. But I don't get the Dodgers' motives for acquiring him there. I mean, he's a lefty who's struggling. You already got Cody Bellinger and Max Muncy doing the same thing, and while you got a billion moving parts there to give Dave Roberts a lot of flexibility. It's not like Gallo can play second base for Muncie or play center field for Bellinger. You got to move like Mookie Betts around or put Chris Taylor at second base or something like that in order to make it work. And then you're you're still not guaranteed anything. And they took on all of Gallo's, you know, remaining 3.7 million, you know, kind of nudging them close to the uh closer to the uh the, the luxury tax tier. And the other one was the Dodgers trade of Mitch White. I don't know why you're cleaning out depth for long-term prospects when you've got Walker Bueller on the injured list and Andrew Heaney being held together with wheat paste and innings concerns for for uh, Gonsolin and, and and Tyler Anderson. Uh, and likewise, when the Yankees traded Jordan Montgomery, yes, they got Frankie Montas, but they just put Luis Severino on the on the injured list. They're facing innings concerns with Nestor Cortez, so it's like. 
you would have expected a complimentary moves on both the Yankees and Dodgers parts to make sure they had enough present day pitching depth. And I think that's something both of you guys could speak to given your points of view. I'll follow up on on uh, on the hater deal first, which again, it was a surprise. And once the Brewers kind of made a couple moves following that, it made, made a little bit more sense. Where you, you're going, okay, well, we know Devin Williams can step in for Hater. He's the closer. But now who's going to step in for Devin Williams? They acquired Matt Bush pretty quickly after that. Now they acquired Trevor Rosenthal, who, who can help him towards the end of the season. And I think Rodgers is going to be better in a setup role, if that if that's what they use him as. Right. Um, you know, from my perspective, watching watching a baseball game where you go, like, I need, you know, our team doesn't score a lot of runs. Our starting rotation is great. We need this closer to come come in and lock the game down. And, and he was, you know, Rodgers was doing that, but he had lost a lot of confidence. And it looked, it, it visually looked like he, he did not, want to be out there in the ninth inning anymore and so i you know it gets to the point as especially if you're, if you're cheering for a team you want that guy in the ninth who's just like the other team is going to be like oh no we got to face this guy and i don't i don't you know of course you got guys like craig kimbrell who you probably teams hitters probably think that about but then he struggles so much he's, he's just always an adventure but still I, you know hater for the most part has been really really good um just came in and blew away the rockies yesterday and i think that's that's a big difference, especially confidence-wise. I think, you know, with with all the moves the Padres made, there's just that swagger, confidence. And now going into ninth inning, you go, all right, the other team's batters are not going to be comfortable up here. they got to face Hayter. You know, and, and that's, you know, from, from the Brewers' perspective, like I said, they got Williams as that guy. And now how are we going to get the ball to him? you got guys like Boxberger and, and Trevor Gott, but now you add Matt Bush. Trevor Rosenthal hopefully comes back at, at the end of the season. You know, to touch on, on the moves that the Dodgers and Yankees made, I think those are two teams that are just like they don't really care about. I mean, one one sixty two, hundred and sixty two games is so important. It's always about depth, and it's always about you know how are we going to get through the season. Those two teams already won. They already won the hundred and sixty two game season. They're just looking ahead at the playoffs right now. And so, if you bring in Joey Gallo at a time where Justin Turner's on the IL. You got Edwin Rios, who's coming back soon, but he's a guy who, who's, who normally is going to get some at-bats there. Chris Taylor's still on the IL. He'll be back soon. But you have a window where you can say, look, maybe, maybe it's just the guy just couldn't hit in New York. He just changed the scenery, could help. And, you know, give him a quick look. And if, if it doesn't work out, you got a ton of talent there. And by the time you get to the playoffs, he might not be part of that part of that picture. You know, Mitch White is, is, is one of their important guys, like I said, for 162 games, you need that guy because you have so many guys hurt. Uh, but at this point, I think they're comfortable to say, look, we're good. We, we, we already won this division, most likely. It's not going to fall apart because we don't have you know, a reliable fifth starter. Uh, and then Yankees as well. Like Jordan Montgomery is, is very important over 162-game season. Once you get to the playoffs, maybe he's going to start your fourth game. But... Also, like, you know, what? where else can we get better? Let's, let's get Harrison Bader, who's going to be, you know, he's going to improve us defensively. We're going to play, we're going to be playing really close games in the playoffs. If we can put that guy in center field for the last three innings of the game, that's going to be more important to us than having Jordan Montgomery maybe as a long reliever, maybe our fourth starter in, in the playoffs. I, I think they're, both of those teams are in that mode now. It's just like we already won. 
And it's it's silly how watching these teams, you know, they, they can still struggle, but they they're so far ahead. I don't even know when the Dodgers last lost a game, even though they have all these guys. <laughs> these guys hurt. They're gonna get Dustin May back. They're gonna get Blake Trinan back. I mean, it's it's pretty it's crazy. I mean, it is it's fun. It is for you know, as a Padre fan, to be like, wow, look how good our team is. Yeah, the other team is never never gonna lose a freaking game. <laughs> how are we gonna catch them? So definitely, my perspective is that was was just a team looking ahead at the playoffs. The Dodgers, for sure, the Dustin May, Dustin May rehabbing is a key to the Mitch White stuff. Yeah. May has, you know, just looking at the, looking at Synergy and folks who like don't know this already, the PCL, if you plug, if you open up a, a Pacific Coast League box score or a game day, there's like a six digit game code at the very end of the URL. You can plug that six digit game code into a baseball savant game feed and get like all the stat cast data for Ooh. that particular PCL game. So like you want to know how hard Dustin May is throwing during rehab. You could do a thing like that. And just in his most recent start on the 28th, he touched 99 several times. Uh, he's basically sitting 95 to 99 averaging 97. Like he's on his way back. So there's that part of it. The Jordan Montgomery thing. I agree. The, the bottom of the Yankees 40 man starters it feels kind of flimsy, you know, Davey Garcia, Clark Schmidt more in a multi-inning role of late. Uh, it does feel kind of dicey. Things can really unravel. Yeah, and losing Michael King too, because then you're, yeah. you know, you're probably needing Schmidt for that role. You're hoping Schmidt can fill that role, which, you know, those are massive Why shoes shoulder stuff. Yeah, and there's just, there's so, you know, it's, I, I'm t- I guess I'm taking a belt and suspenders look at these things. Where it's like, yeah, sure, you know, they, they can coast they can coast the rest of the way to the division title. But what happens if A and B? And, you know, I, I'm thinking about this because, you know, when I was I was writing about the Freddie Peralta injury a few weeks ago, I was like, yeah, the Brewers have the depth to withstand this. But then but but what if something else happens too? And sure enough, you know, right after that, uh Woodruff went on the injured list and suddenly you know, they looked a whole lot thinner. It's, a, it's the injury stack, as we used to call it when I was at Baseball Prospectus, where suddenly you're like, you're really deep into the depth chart and you're getting guys who are probably not ready or not anywhere close to your best options for those roles. And, you know, we've seen the Yankees uh, and Dodgers go through that at times. I mean, you know, openers in key games and things like that in, in, in recent years. Yeah, so of the teams who... I guess the last thing on that, Nick Frasso, who came over from the Blue Jays in the Mitch White trade, I saw his first outing back from TJ in April, like on the Blue Jays backfields, and he looked pretty good. <laughs> that outing is on YouTube if folks want to see it with velocities and everything in the in the video description, so folks can go check that out. All right, so of the sellers, let's talk about some of the, the teams that got back a lot of volume. Baltimore, Cincinnati. The Angels and the the Giants and obviously the Nationals um, all got back like a lot of depth. There were some other individual instances where teams got back a lot of depth like in one trade or two. Uh, Milwaukee, like Milwaukee getting that group back for Hater. That's a lot of guys. You know, Esteuri Ruiz who had a not really a breakout year because this guy was generating Alfonso Soriano comps on the backfields here in Arizona when he was a Royals prospect. And I can't remember off the top of my head what the Padres traded to Kansas City to get him. 
But that was, was coming was, on the uh, heels. Of- Ian Kennedy, Trevor Cahill. Um, I think those, and they got Matt Strom back in that deal. All right, go ahead. I'm so, sorry. Yeah. No, right. That's incredible. Like, you remember that first of all? But yeah, like this was coming on the heels of Tatis breaking out. And this was another like Preller saw this guy in person on the backfields and they like pointed at him and here he comes. He can really run and he's got pull to pull power. And then his approach started to become a problem at the upper levels. We had the pandemic season. He sort of fell not off of the radar, but off of like the main section of the prospect lists. And then at 23 years old, total rebound, walk rates are like doubled what they were before. The Padres, I don't know if that was the case with this guy, but the Padres have dabbled in the virtual reality training for hitters in their approaches in the past. Gabriel Arias, who they traded to the Guardians as part of the Clevenger deal, he had what they considered to be some market improvements with his ball strike recognition because of the VR stuff. Maybe that's what happened here. I've done like a lot of film deep dive on Ruiz here. The last little bit, he can really run. He was a terrible defensive second baseman and now is playing center field. That's part of where the Soriano comps were coming from. Like it was just so clean. This guy can run. He has power. He can't play second base. What's he going to do? But he's turned into a pretty good defensive center fielder. The swinging strike rate at AAA has been about average. The power production underneath the surface has not been great. Even though he's slugging like well over 500, that's a Pacific Coast League caricature for sure. But he's probably like an interesting center field like role player for Milwaukee. And then they just turned Josh Hader into like a pinata of sorts. Taylor Rogers is not as good as him, but he's a good late inning bullpen piece. Denelson Lamette should be and was for a while I mean he was a damn good starter for a while his body has changed he's been hurt a bunch his stuff was just not as crisp he's dealt with injury and Robert Gasser is pitchability lefty who's going to move through the minors pretty quickly Milwaukee's player dev group has done a better job coaxing more out of guys like this than San Diego's has the last couple of years. Part of the reason San Diego made some changes uh, in that department. And so now like Gasser's there. Uh, Obviously the Nationals, the Nationals moved from 24th in the farm rankings to 8th. Wow. They will slide again as soon as CJ Abrams graduates. He's already graduated on roster days, but I don't count up the roster day guys until after the season. Like CJ Abrams is going to get there on at bats. I don't have to worry about it. I just can look at the number and know that he graduated, but huge injection of talent for Washington. If folks want to look at those prospects, certainly you've seen Gore. Certainly you've seen Abrams, uh, Hasselwood and Susana video. It's all in the prospect reaction post to that, that trade. If you want to get a look at what a 240 pound, 18 year old touching one Oh two on the backfields look like, That's Harlan Susana, so folks should go check that out. Washington's tough because they are, I believe in some aspects of that organization very strongly. I think that they are good at picking the right guys. It's part of the reason they won the World Series when they did, when they were just like, Asdrubal Cabrera, Josh Harrison, uh, you know, like Howie Kendrick, like they are good at, we need to fill in around Scherzer, Strasburg, etc. We need to hit on literally all these players that were adding to the big club and they did and they won but they are regressive in other areas it is part of the reason that they couldn't sustain that competitive window they couldn't create the same amount of depth that teams that are good at identifying amateur pitching developing that pitching into 
viable depth like the Dodgers, like the Giants, like Milwaukee, like Tampa Bay, like the Yankees. Like these are the teams who are good consistently and they have certain they have a certain analytical bent that drives at least a portion of their decision making and Washington does not. Like they are regressive in the extreme with some of that stuff. So as much as I like the group of guys who they got back for Soto, I am worried about them being able to create the wave of pitching that they will need to to keep pace with teams who apply science to player dev and can just crank out, you know, more of their day two and three draft picks become something interesting or useful than Washington's have have tended to. So there's that. The Giants, speaking of, and Baltimore to the same degree, all the pitching they got back, Baltimore, like Baltimore's hellbent on just getting back two and three pitchers in almost every deal. That's been the case since Dylan Bundy. It's been the case since, you know, that group Elias took over. So uh, San Francisco got back a host of pitching Thomas Zapucky and Nick Zwack from the Mets and Carson Seymour from the Mets. Michael Streifeller, who's got huge stuff and really no idea where it's going, sort of on the Mariners roster fringe. He's a 40-man candidate in this offseason. They got him back. That'll be interesting to see what they do. So these teams who like to apply sound dev concepts en masse, like Baltimore and San Francisco, seem to execute that plan again. Uh, Minnesota's sort of in this bucket as well. I think the Angels want to be in that bucket, and it's just a matter of them catching up from a player dev infrastructure standpoint. Like the new regime is there. You know, I'm not really sure what they're going to be doing from a dev standpoint. Artie Moreno doesn't seem to like to spend money on anything other than individual players. So I don't, you know, I can't say what they're going to, but obviously the Angels have been acquiring pitching at a high volume since that group has taken over too. So from my perspective, watching the behavior of that group of teams over the last couple of days was pretty interesting. If you guys had to look at the standings now, how maybe has your thoughts about who is going to make the postseason changed over the last 72 hours? I mean, for me, obviously, I think this pretty much torpedoes you know, what looked like about a one in three, one in four chance for the Red Sox to do it because, you know, they essentially waved the white flag by trading, you know, guys like Vasquez and by taking on Eric Hosmer, even as free as as free as he may be to them. The AL Central, the Twins obviously were very aggressive or, you know, comparatively aggressive. I mean, the White Sox and Guardians, you know, sat on their hands, really. I mean, I know the White Sox got Jake Diekman, the Guardians didn't seem to do a whole lot. I mean, both of those teams kept coming up when I was doing the replacement level killers lists. It felt to me like as close as they are, they're almost conceding the division in that one. I love how aggressive the Mariners were. You know, obviously that drought hangs over their heads, but going out and getting Luis Castillo was really impressive. And I know that they gave up a lot in that package. And Eric, you and I were kind of kicking around some some comparisons between the uh, the Castillo, Montas, and, and Tyler uh, Malley packages, um, and that one kind of stood out. But I love what the Mariners did. I think you know they they uh, uh, they improved themselves, and uh, a little surprised the Mets didn't do a little more. But I think they're you know they're they're heading for the playoffs. 
uh, one way or the other. They kind of did their thing in the off season, right? When yeah, they got Canada, yeah. I mean, Bassett look, you got and, Matt, you got Max Scherzer, you got Starling Marte, you got Eduardo Escobar. You didn't need to make the, those upgrades, and they did. You know, they filled the DH thing with a platoon. I mean, it's not sexy, but it should be effective. Yeah, Ruff and Naquin are definitely a nice. They kind of yeah, fit more effective nice than Dominic Smith, who's you know. You know, hit for yeah. hit hit like a star at the major league level for about eight minutes. You know, and then you know the rest has been just one ongoing psychodrama. I thought the Cardinals were pretty, you know, sneaky strong there with the um, the the additions to their rotation. I thought the Dodgers kind of missed missed some opportunities there, but like you said, I mean, I, I think your 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 explanation of the Gallo, you know, a trade from their standpoint makes sense to me, and and likewise, I mean, I think the you know, the thing stopped to fail, you know, stopped. Didn't, didn't stop to consider at the time. And in retrospect now, especially if you're giving me the numbers on Dustin May, you know, that, yeah, he's obviously could be a significant piece for them, even if it's just in a, you know, in a multi-inning roll out of the bullpen or something, he can give them some outs. And that's, you know, as they, sh- they've kind of had to turn over a lot of their bullpen because of injuries this year. And, you know, that could be, that could be significant there. Yeah. Looking at, at the wild card race in the NL, I mean, the, the only thing that happened at, at the trade deadline is you know, the one, there's probably one team that was kind of like, all right, we're, we're, we're out. And that's the Giants who are four and a half, only four and a half out from a, from a wild card spot. Uh, but they're going in the, in the wrong direction. And they, you know, by them saying, okay, well, the, the guys we were hoping to, you know, we, we had signed to help us late in the season down the stretch, uh, Matthew Boyd, Trevor Rosenthal, we traded those guys because we were not going to be in it down the stretch. So, so you basically have seven teams that are, that are, playing for for a spot right now. And the Dodgers are going to get in. The Mets are, are way up there. The Brewers, you know, most likely. And the Braves are way up there. The Potters, with what they did, probably going to gonna be able to sustain themselves unless they, they fall apart like, you know, two of the last three seasons. So, so you're basically looking at, at the Phillies and the Cardinals battling it out. And those two teams both got, got better. The Car- Cardinals added, you know, two, two left-handed starters again. Though these guys are probably better than the two left-handed starters they added last year, Quintana and, and, and Montgomery. Phillies added Syndergaard, uh, added David Robertson. They added, you know, good defensive center fielder in Brandon Marsh. And so it's basically, you know, unless unless the Potteries aren't, aren't as good as people expect, it's just those two teams battling it out for, for the, the final spot. And, and so it was, it was nice to see that th- those two teams actually try to do something, try to get better. Uh, knowing that, and then it's interesting that there are four teams that are out of the that are out just outside the wild card in the AL right now. Cleveland's only a game back; they didn't do anything. Baltimore's a game and a half back. They traded their closer. They traded one of their best hitters away. The White Sox didn't really do anything. They're only two games out, um, and then the Red Sox are only two games out. Hey, Tommy Pham, Eric Hosmer, <laughs> no change, change of scenery, chips on their shoulder. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't rule them out. You know, T- Tampa Bay and Seattle have have those spots right now, but they're they're barely. They're just ahead of these other teams. Um, so surprised that those teams didn't. Other teams didn't do more, but maybe they are looking at it as like, hey, we don't have to do more. We're already right there. We can already. We're already better than than, than Tampa Bay. Um, Seattle lost their their best player in Julio Rodriguez. So I think the teams at the top actually did more to like sustain. You know, like, all right, we're not going anywhere. We're just, we're getting ready for the playoffs. Yeah. And so, so it's nice to still have teams fighting for a playoff spot in the next two months. Yeah, the, the AL Central, the relative inactivity in that division is fascinating. Cleveland especially, 
Cleveland, every year I do the 40-man crunch piece, and Cleveland almost always has a pretty sizable crunch. They Some of that is because the hitters that they tend to like are the types of hitters that I tend to like. They like their up-the-middle high-contact guys, and so when it comes time to put Brian Rocchio and Tyler Freeman and that whole group on the 40-man, I'm all in. But again, like... They just have so many controllable young players. At some point, there's just not enough room for all of them, and they have to consolidate. But they didn't do it again here before the deadline. I'm not sure if I'm forecasting what like a fit for them in the offseason would be. I don't know. Like They just seem to not want to make a deal unless it is a deal they feel comfortable that they are going to win. And when you have the 40-man crunch that they do, teams know that and want to try to leverage that into a deal that doesn't feel like one, you're going to win. Even teams, there are certain teams who people in baseball feel like are hard to deal with or weird to deal with. And people count like the Rays among those teams. But when push came to shove, like they, they put in more chips than you would in a vacuum for Nelson Cruz last year. Like they're like, look, we're in a pennant chase. This guy is good and brings a certain clubhouse something that we want. Like we have a 40 man crunch anyway, send them Joe Ryan and Drew Schrotman both like whatever, go ahead and do it. And you know, like you get that, but Cleveland doesn't seem inclined to do any of that. They, they seem like they want to feel really good about any move that they, that they make. There are certainly teams who, I think have asymmetrical thought with Cleveland who maybe they can find a deal with like Washington or, you know, like Colorado, like I mean, if the White Sox weren't in their division, maybe that would be a fit for some of that stuff. But I, 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 I don't know. The White Sox not doing anything is maybe more a function of the farm system. I like the top of their farm system. Fine. I think guys like Brian Ramos, Colson Montgomery, Oscar Colas, that group, uh, Colson's in the top 100 now. Ramos and Colas have a shot to move into there within the next six months, like maybe be on the offseason 100. I don't know if you want to mortgage that depth to add to this club. It's already a pretty good looking roster on paper. A bunch of us picked them to win the division and like go to the World Series before the season. But yeah, like they, they, it seems like the White Sox are the team who. If you want them to do something, they maybe don't have the horses to do a move that the way that like if the Cardinals wanted Frankie Montas, they probably could have added to a package and got him, you know, not just like one of their top 100 guys and, you know, Alec Burleson or one of those guys who was going to be squeezed out of the outfield picture. Like that seems like what they were willing to move, but uh, wasn't like enough to get a deal done. But I would be fascinated. The AL Central was the division I was most excited to watch all year. Kansas City has sort of disappointed me, but otherwise, like, they're still so tightly clustered. Uh, does anyone have any final trade deadline thoughts, anything they want to get in before we move on? You know you know what, what I thought was interesting was how the Reds, after their acquisitions, they're just stacked, I mean, in the, at the shortstop position. And so, you, you know, yeah. so, so I think, I think after, and so they called up Jose Barrero today. I think, you know, and it's getting to that point where, the Reds aren't competing. Cal Farmer, okay, you're, you're a solid guy, but you're not our everyday shortstop. You should probably be like a, a utility guy. And we got this young kid um, who we want to take a look at every day. But now the fact that they have so much talent at every level, shortstop, high-level talent, and you're talking about 
you know, so you got this window to get a look at Barrero, but Ellie De La Cruz has risen to be, become one of the top prospects in baseball. He's in double A now, just like toying yeah. with, with these guys in double A. Like he, he just got called up a couple of weeks ago. I've watched a few games. It's like, this is not, this is not, this is not hard for this guy. He's just messing with these kids here. Um, and he's like, what is he, 19, 20 years old? And so they added Noel V. Marte, one of the you know, their top shortstop prospect in that. Luis Castillo deal, he's in high A. Edwin Arroyo, he's in low A. And then they added Victor Acosta, who's down in, in, in rookie ball. Or I'm not sure if he's even played yet, but he's definitely yeah. a rookie-level guy. I mean, so they're stacked at that, at that position. Not sure which you know who's going to stay at shortstop. But, you know, a shortstop prospect, you know, athletic, that's that's huge, huge upside there. I just thought that was interesting. And then, then the fact yeah. that they, they called up Barrero today made a lot of sense because it's like, all right, let's 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 take a look at this first guy here who's up, up next in line. Yeah, so that whole group, Ellie and Noel V. Marte, both have to go on their 40-man after the season. So the timeline for both of those guys is – Look, both of them are probably going to spend their first option year in the minors. I bet they both start next year at double A. Neither of them is a shortstop lock. Healthy Jose Barrero is a is a plus shortstop with a seven arm. That guy's coming off of ham eight surgery. So let's take whatever Jose Barrero does down the stretch here with a grain of salt. When Barrero was 21 and in the mid minors and coming here to Fall League, and you were comparing him to like, you know, look, this is a 21-year-old shortstop prospect. What if this guy were at LSU? What if this guy were at Vanderbilt? He'd be talked about as one of the top three to five picks in the draft because you're talking about a short, like a no-doubt shortstop with plus power and real chase issues. That is what we're going to find. You know, Ellie is basically the same thing where it's switch hitter, huge physical projection, at least plus power now, maybe 70, 80 future power. The whole thing might be undone by his approach. Like it is scary as, you know, he hit a 500 foot home run the other night. He's also striking out 40% of his plate appearances. So at some point, Ellie De La Cruz is not just like a what he might be, but you got to say what he is. He's a double A now and that time is basically here. He's going to be on the 40 man. So uh, he's going to be another one of like, I hope they send him to fall league. That would be nice. He's a double A. I doubt he's going to be part of their instructs group. I assume Edwin Arroyo, who actually DH'd down here in Arizona for their complex level team last night. The Reds complex team, folks, if you live in Arizona or you're coming here, go see their complex level team. They've got a bunch of interesting guys. Ariel Almonte, Donovan Antonia, Carlos Jorge. That was a pretty interesting group in addition to what they added. Arroyo, I'm sure, will go out to an affiliate at some point, but Acosta will will probably play. Leo Balcazar. They have two good shortstops with Acosta and Balcazar. That's a that's a really good group. Them in Texas, I think, are the two best rosters down here. Folks should go check that out if they're around. Jay, any parting thoughts on trade deadline stuff from you? Yeah, you know, I I guess I'd hoped that there would be more teams in it still in it. At this stage, I mean, as you know, as we were saying, I mean, the um, the races have already whittled themselves down, and I think did so further with the actions of the Giants and the and the Red Sox. So we've got what seven teams fighting for six spots in the National League, and seven eight teams fighting for six spots in the American League. I thought that the um, expansion to twelve teams to six in each league was supposed to increase the incentives to stay in it. And it doesn't feel like it really did that. Would you guys agree? 
Yeah. Yeah. And now that I'm thinking about it, I, I think that some of it is that teams, some of the teams who are feel like they would be on the line, like Baltimore and Boston, there are probably GMs from 10, 15 years ago, if Kevin Towers were the Orioles GM, that the, the way their deadline behavior takes shape with the playoff format the way it is, is probably different than with someone like Mike Elias at the helm. So I think some yeah. of it is like that, yeah, like the type of executive that we have now. Yeah, fewer Cowboys. I mean, and and, and I think we sort of wanted to see, you know, I think we were hoping maybe that we would see a little bit more of a let's go for it. And, you know, we did we did see that from the Mariners who cleaned out their farm system, you know, and I'm looking at the I'm looking at the, the farm system rankings. And obviously the, the Mariners and the Padres are, are, are way down there now because they just traded anybody that wasn't nailed down. You know, and likewise, the Phillies didn't have much to trade, but, you know, they did what they could to get Marsh and, and to you know to help shore up their, their defense a bit. And I just I thought we would see maybe a little bit more of that. And I know that, you know, in this industry, we complain about the tendency to hug prospects too much. You know, no disrespect to all the, all the work you do and trying to trying to differentiate between them for those of us who don't, you know, see the comp, you know, the, the action on the complex league level. But, you know, we know that they're not all going to pan out. And, and that I think <laughs> the, the average the average fan, I think. You know, overestimates the likelihood that even a fifty future value prospect is going to live up to his live up to that level, or what he's going to be, and what that you know how we see them, and and you know how how teams see them, and what the, and, and what that means. So it's interesting, you know, as I think as as you've tried to educate our audience about that stuff. There's still in the larger baseball world something of a disconnect there, and and. And it's it yeah. still feels sort of odd to watch this go down with one eye on the inside and one eye on the outside, and and you know the expectations of what this new format would do and what it you know how it played out this time. Yeah, I feel you on the prospect stuff. It is it is hard, you know, without beating people over the head with bust rates, and you know I'm pretty pragmatic already. I tend to round down, like I tend to project. The players to a ceiling and then subtract risk. Right. And with some of the guys like teenage pitching, etc., like I subtract pretty hard. And still, it is not, unfortunately, for the baseball zeitgeist and internet culture and all this other stuff, like pragmatism isn't what Skip Bayless isn't a pragmatist. You know, like <laughs> pragmatism does not, not deliver clicks, is what you're trying to right. say. Yes. So <laughs> it is hard to, it's been hard to try to be, you know, Alton Brown instead of Gordon Ramsay. Uh-huh. It doesn't permeate to the level that I would like. Yeah. And I'm wrong too. A lot of the time, as we will start to find out here, like we are now six years out from when this became my full-time job. And so those guys who I wrote up in year one are hitting free agency now. And it's like time to look back and be like, okay, how did I screw up? How was I correct? What are the trends therein? Like, it's time to start doing that now. Right. Okay. So before we wrap, I'd like to get everyone's thoughts on Vince Gully. Vince Gully passed away last night at the age of 94. I couldn't believe that he was 94 because it just feels like not that long ago that he was still, that his voice was just still coming through my TV at the very end of the night. So, Jay, I think obviously, as someone who cares about the Dodgers and who has a, just a better idea of 
baseball history than either Jason or I. I'm kind of curious as to what your thoughts are on at a time like this. Obviously, we lose people of import all the time, but this one feels very specific and a rare case of someone who I've never heard a bad word about Vince Gully. Yeah, it's you know it was interesting. I think I found out the the Dodgers broke the news at eleven fifteen last night. I put my last trade piece to bed uh, about an hour earlier and was kind of settling down. I was I was wasn't planning on watching the Dodgers game actually, even though they were playing the Giants, which is always fun to watch. I was like, I need a break from baseball. And then Emma's walking the dog and texts me. She says, Oh no. And so immediately turned the Dodgers game on and Joe Davis and, and Jessica Mendoza are talking about it and was struck by the way baseball Twitter, which had been buzzing about Juan Soto all day long, you know, and, and the rest of the trade moves just instantly. It was just like blanket Vin Scully coverage. I mean, everybody had a story about Vin Scully. And that's because, you know, Vin Scully wasn't just who he was you know, the announcer of the Dodgers, he was somebody who was just, who was way bigger than that. Obviously, he had a national profile because, you know, a good chunk of his career was as a national broadcaster. But through, you know, this last stage of his career with MLB TV and social media, you know, he could reach everybody who had a subscription to one of those things. And, you know, I never lived in Los Angeles in my life. And, you know, I still got to hear untold hundreds of Vin Scully games because of of the you know the reach of 21st century media. And with me, I go back I go back with Vin Scully to 1979 when I was a kid uh, growing up in Salt Lake City, and and my dad introduced me to Vin Scully when we were driving to California on a family road trip, and he found it in the car, and we listened to uh, what turned out to be Don Sutton's 50th career shutout. And I just the breadth of baseball history that Vince Scully could cover and the way that all of us hearing him got to absorb that was something really, really special. And, you know, there's a story in 2016 when he was when when he was in the final stages of his of his career about to retire. I wrote a thing for Sports Illustrated and. I decided when Meg asked me to do something for the site to repurpose that kind of in the spirit of the way that Vin could tell the same story over and over again, and they would get better in the retelling. And uh, so this one's called Ice Skating, my tribute that uh, is scheduled to go up as we as I speak here later later today on Wednesday, and will be obviously on all over the site by Friday here when this podcast comes out. It's called Ice Skating with Jackie Robinson. And it's about a story where Vin Scully talks about racing Jackie Robinson in it while he was in his first year broadcasting for the Dodgers in 1950. And it's just funny because Jackie Robinson, who's a four sports star at UCLA and, and, you know, had never been on skates. And he's like, yeah, come on, let's, let's race. It's the only way I'm going to get better. And Vince Scully's like, okay, you know, he's, he's experienced that. The two race and he's like, I'm, I'm probably the only person who can say this. I raced Jackie Robinson in ice skates. And it's just a wonderful story that he retold over the years and, and fleshed out the details that, you know, Jackie's wife, Rachel, was pregnant with Sharon Robinson at the time. And, you know, the story just got better with age. And that's what I loved about Vince Scully. I think that's what a lot of us loved about Vince Scully is, is the way that those stories would age and the continuity that we would share with, you know, parents and children and grandparents. And just it's just so cool. I mean, it just remarkable when you're at, at a job for 67 years you're going to touch you know a huge swath of, of people and and he did that and i don't think we're ever going to agree on anything 
uh, as we agreed on Vin Scully throughout the baseball world. It's just remarkable. Yeah, I, the thing I, I think about a lot and I talk about my kids a lot with, and especially I was thinking about it a lot before I switched careers and started doing my baseball thing, is, is there is a version of, of ourselves that, you know, it's the best version of ourselves, right? Nobody can be that. So there's not really a competition, you know, with other people. It's just what is the best version of myself? And, and, and always tr- focusing on trying to find what my skill set is, something that I love, and hopefully putting all my all my time and energy into that, making it into a career. And that that's my goal was with, with trying to get into this job. And then to describe somebody who, who is, has found that, like Vince Scalia, I think that's perfection as far as finding your skill set, something you're passionate about, something you love, and then just being the best ever. There's like, no, nobody could ever be, be that good. That's the actual, that's what the best version of, of yourself looks like. And, and to do that and to be so successful to the point where everybody knows who you are, you know, and that, and not even in just baseball, you call football games. Everybody knows who this man is. Everybody loves this, this man. And so to have that platform, to be in that position to meet so many people and to carry himself with, with such kindness and like thoughtfulness and to do that for so long. I mean, to have that effect on people, it's, it's hard to, to, to see, you know, to see anything better than, than that as far as like a human being and what, what you bring to this, to this world. And so just, you know, the fact that we're in baseball and, and we know who he is because we, I listened to him growing up and, and to hear that voice, it's just like, oh, baseball. All right. That's, that's the voice that I associate with baseball. But when, when, you know, being able to see him, you know, in the dining room at Petco Park o- over the years and just kind of see him interacting. And then you see all the stories and you go, man, everybody loves this guy. And I don't know if this guy has ever, you know, it doesn't seem like he ever has a bad day. He's just always really, really kind to people. So it was, uh, yeah, after yesterday it was, it was crazy because I had been working on my computer for probably, 17 18 hours straight almost done and then to see that it was kind of like whoa jesus (laughs) so uh yeah it was it was a crazy day um that was an interesting way to end it there yeah my auditory relationship with vince scully is shorter than both of you guys certainly short compared to the length of the man's career i've definitely heard vince scully call a game before i realized that that's who I was listening to. It wasn't until MLB Extra Innings, what we now know as MLB TV, became a thing that he was someone who I could listen to on a consistent basis. And I grew up with Harry Callis. I grew up with John Facenda on NFL Films. The voice doing the thing was important to me. And it was nice to discover someone of that magnitude Later in my life, like after it had already existed, it was sort of like listening to the Smiths for the first time. Like, oh, this happened 30 years ago, <laughs> but I'm only discovering it now. That's kind of cool. Oh, I, you know, I just watched Heat, you know, or whatever. But this was a special thing because the pace at which you're calling a game entirely on your own creates a different quality than anything I had ever heard. I appreciate it so much how the moments were allowed to just air out and there were long periods of quiet baseball sounds that he was so unselfish as a broadcaster that he would 
allow that to happen and just like let moments breathe. Yeah. Was very, very meaningful to me watching baseball at 1 a.m. on the East Coast when that became a thing that I could do every night when I come home from working at the Iron Pigs games or at Baseball Info Solutions and it'd be really late and Vin Scully was still on. And so, you know, it's a special thing when this seemingly ancient, almost supernatural thing and progress in this other area allow eras to collide and people like me to get to listen to the last half decade of Vin Scully's career and like totally discover him anew, even though he's someone who has endured for you know, half a century or more in our game. I was going to say the, the the silence thing is something that really stood out to me as well in my big tribute piece. I mean, there's one, the, the game in September 2006, when the Dodgers came back against the Padres with four consecutive home runs in the bottom of the ninth inning and then won it on a Nomar Garciaparra home run later. Scully lets the moment breathe for like 30 plus seconds and then he comes back on the air. It's not in the clip that I embedded because MLB edited it out, but it's like, he says, oh, I forgot to tell you, the Dodgers are in first place. And that was the turning point of the, of the 2006 NL West race. And he just like, just the way he let it breathe, or you go back to him, his call of Hank Aaron's 715th home run. And he comes up with this eloquent speech, but he also lets the moment breathe with the, the sound of the crowd, that baseball zen that we've come to appreciate in this like age that's just oversaturated with, you know, noise, especially at the at the ballpark when you've got, you know, bells and whistles and music clips and all that everywhere. It's just incredible economy to what he was doing and incredible precision. Somebody shared the uh, transcript of his call of Sandy Koufax's perfect game in 1965. And he is just, I mean, it's as writing, as literature, it holds up. It's just remarkable how fluid he was, how precise he was, how he could let the moment breathe and yet fill the nooks and crannies of a baseball game with his stories, his observations, and yet not miss the action and it just you know it's what separated him from 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 everybody else and i think you know both of you guys touched on that and also on on his humanity and it's just he was the whole package and and we're never going to see anybody quite like him two and two to harvey Keene, one strike away sandy into his windup here's the pitch swung on and missed a perfect game This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Chad Darbin for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider telling a friend or two about it. It helps us out. After you have checked out the Fangraphs store and considered an ad-free membership, don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It is the best way to keep up on everything we have going on at the site, free to your inbox. That will do it for us in this wild week. We hope you get some rest before the stretch run, and we'll talk to you next time.